Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the second half of the program, we're going to revisit a conversation with photojournalist Scott Wallace, author of The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Wallace joined a Brazilian expedition with the explorer Sidney Pozuelo at the head of a 34-man team in search of the mysterious flecheros, or people of the arrow, seldom glimpsed warriors known to repulse all intruders with showers of deadly arrows. Pozuelo's mission was to protect the arrow people, and the expedition seeks uh, to uh, find the flecheros even while trying to avoid them. Along the way, Wallace uncovers clues as to who the Arrow people might be, how they've managed to endure as one of the last unconquered tribes, and why so much about them must remain shrouded in mystery if they're to survive. The Unconquered reveals critical battleground in the fight to save the planet. First, the business case for sustainability. My guest in the first half is Hunter Lovins, president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. Trained as a sociologist and lawyer, Lovins is a professor of sustainable business management at Bainbridge Institute, Bard College, and Denver University. She gave the keynote address at the recent Intermountain Sustainability Summit in Ogden. We're talking with uh, Hunter Lovins. We're talking about Entrepreneuring the Green Economy. It's the title of a uh, TEDx talk I was recently looking uh, at. Uh, uh, Hunter Lovins, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The, uh, the subject, I think, of, the, of your... Um, organization and uh, uh, the subject of uh, many of your TED Talks is Entrepreneuring the Green Economy. Uh, I, I think people are wondering, is is that possible? It's, it's a big, big problem. <laughs> it is not only possible, it's highly desirable. If you want jobs, enhanced resilience in your community, a higher quality of life, greater prosperity, We know how to achieve this, and the best companies and communities around the world are already implementing more sustainable practices. They're implementing the green economy. Indeed, green economy jobs are about the only jobs that are growing, with the the exception this last year of some jobs in the fracking industry, which uh, jumped up. On the other hand, we know, and it's a corollary of the round earth theory, that the fossil fuels in the ground are limited. And wells play out typically in six months or so. So it's a a classic boom-bust economy, whereas the green economy is the economy of the future. And this, by the way, is why China is investing heavily in the green economy. It's what South Korea is investing in. And it's what our communities ought to be investing in, again, if we want jobs and a high quality of life. Now, you you take this to businesses, right? You make the business case for sustainability. Uh, I was hearing in this TEDx uh, talk that uh, that I was watching, uh, you say you're done with Washington. Used to believe, now now we bypass Washington. Is that the case? Well, you know, if, uh, if you have a government that works, then it's awfully tempting to say, let's implement good policy. And this is being done in some areas. California, for example, has recently begun investing in its future, investing in education, investing in clean energy, investing in the green economy. The last time California did this, they grew their economy significantly, became the sixth largest economy in the world then they 
decided that they liked austerity better and stopped investing in, in things like people and good jobs and dropped to the eighth largest economy, went into a very serious recession. They've decided now they're, they're going to go back to the prosperity that they enjoyed that uh, kicked off Silicon Valley, the whole Internet revolution, and they're going to start investing in themselves again. The Europeans are beginning to do this, and we, we've been watching the collapse of, of Greece, perhaps Italy, now maybe Spain, and the, the EU has begun to talk of late about maybe we ought to invest in the clean economy. When they do this, again, they will unleash prosperity. This has been the example around the world whenever governments do that. But as you say, Washington seems caught in deadlock. So who else is there? If you realize that now on the planet over half the big economic entities aren't countries, they're companies, well, let's talk to the big businesses. And guess what? <laughs> Business is going green. When Walmart announces that they're going to become 100% renewably powered, sell sustainable products, become the world's largest organic retailer, trust me, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because there's a business case. There are now over 46 separate studies from the likes of those wild-eyed environmentalists at Goldman Sachs showing that the companies that are the leaders in environment, social, and good governance policy have, take your pick, 25% higher stock value than their less sustainable competitors. The fastest-growing stock values are well-protected from value erosion, even in a down economy, are financially outperforming the sustainability laggards. And there are studies uh, saying this from Harvard, uh, Sustainability isn't the burden on the bottom line it was thought to be. It is the touchstone of all of innovation. And in the future, only companies that make sustainability a goal will achieve competitive advantage. New study out a week or so ago from MIT Business School, the, the Sloan Review, saying essentially the same thing. So we work with companies the world over, helping them implement more sustainable practices as a way of driving their profitability. For example, our team walked into a uh, a big warehouse, a uh, big excuse me, big company that had uh, 6,300 computers and monitors that they left on 24/7 because of urban myths that it would shorten the life of the computer to turn it off and on, which is not true. In that company, just publishing a policy turn the darn thing off if you're not sitting in front of it, would save them $700,000 the first year. Well, in 2010, Ford Motor Company figured this out, published such a policy, saved themselves a million dollars. And there are examples of this kind of waste throughout our economy, eliminating that waste, implementing energy efficiency, resource productivity, is the first step towards building a prosperous economy and building greater national security. Recent report out from the Pentagon that our inattention to global warming is a national security threat. We now have military bases with a goal of being 100% renewably powered by 2025. 
they are retrofitting their buildings. They are getting more efficient vehicles. And military bases are essentially a city. Why don't we do this with our cities? Oh, guess what? Salt Lake did just that, put in place a commitment to cut its emissions of greenhouse gases 30% and achieved that. Salt Lake is now a more prosperous city because it's investing in this sort of thing. For example, the Salt Lake City School District used energy efficiency to save the district over $530,000 every year. This is the equivalent of 21 first-year teacher salaries. There are enormous opportunities all across our economy to, to improve our quality of life, to save money, and to protect the environment. I wonder if we could uh, backtrack a little bit. Um, talk about the science. And I wonder, you know, you hear hear predictions of imminent catastrophe, problems, you know, it's a range. But I wonder how dire you think you think the situation is. Well, as George Carlin said, save the earth, the earth will be fine. It'll shake us off like a bad case of fleas. What we're talking about is save the people. The projections from... Organizations as diverse as the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. I mean, these are folks who have always been saying, oh, let's grow, let's use more oil and gas and coal. We have plenty of it. When they say, as they all did last year, that if we do not, as a world, implement measures to slow down and ultimately stop emissions of carbon and other greenhouse gases. By 2017, the world will lock in six degrees C warming. We will build infrastructure that will go on emitting these gases. Six degrees C is not survivable. It's happened before on planet Earth, and 60 to 90% of species went extinct. So... You know, the Earth will be fine, but civilization as we know it will be in danger. And we're seeing this now in the north of Africa. There are 18 million people at risk of starvation. We have wars being fought now because people are having to move out of where they were because there's no longer any water. Similarly, the sea levels are rising. The Sunderbund Islands off Bangladesh have already gone underwater. With storm surges, you have much of the population of Bangladesh at risk. And indeed, a number of people in, uh, in New York City, as they discovered with Superstorm Sandy. So the science is fairly grim. Where I draw hope is entrepreneurs. We have people like Jeff Coates, who's a uh, professor at uh, Cornell, who discovered that he can make plastic out of CO2. And he says doing it this way is cheaper than the normal way of making plastic. There's a company in California that realized that coral reefs are made by the coral taking carbon out of the seawater and turning it into limestone, calcium carbonate, effectively sequestering the carbon in rocks. 
So they have started misting seawater through the flue gas of a natural gas plant, making the uh, a substitute for cement. The way we make cement now emits a lot of carbon. This process locks the carbon up. There's a whole new movement of people using carbon emissions as a feedstock. I was recently working with a couple of young entrepreneurs from India that are making carbon nanotubes, a, uh, a very valuable feedstock for industry, out of emissions from, say, coal plants or gas plants. So we can entrepreneur our way out of these problems if, uh, if we're clever enough. You are hopeful, it sounds like. You, it's, you know, you've articulated a very big problem with potential dire consequences. I wonder, is, is this going to be enough to get to a good tipping point fast enough? Good question. We're in a horse race against catastrophe. I'm betting on the entrepreneurs. If I really thought it was all over, you better believe I'd stop flying around on airplanes going and giving speeches. I'd stay home on my ranch in Colorado and just live as high quality a life as I could until it's all over. But I do believe there's hope. You've talked about, and you've worked with some big companies, uh, but you um, you talk about, and you, you seems like you're very hopeful about a program of um, jump-starting, encouraging uh, smaller entrepreneurs, mentoring programs. I wonder if you give us some examples. Sure. The entrepreneurs that I just mentioned from India are part of a program going on right now called Unreasonable at Sea. I am a mentor to an organization in Boulder, Colorado, called the Unreasonable Institute that every year brings to Boulder young entrepreneurs from around the world, and then about 60 of us who come in and work with the entrepreneurs and mentor them and give them a, uh, a better shot at, uh, at making a, a successful company. Unreasonable at Sea took this program and put it on the ship that semester at sea takes around the world every year with 600-odd undergraduates. So we have 25 young entrepreneurs on the ship, and I sailed with them on their first leg, mentoring our young entrepreneurs, giving talks to the students, hanging out with students. It's a marvelous program. We have uh, entrepreneurs from, say, Pakistan that are working with young women and working with the communities there to try to end honor killing. Entrepreneurs that are helping child soldiers in Liberia get a new life. Entrepreneurs that are bringing renewable energy to the Tibetan Plateau and to Guatemala. We have entrepreneurs from around the world who are solving some of humanity's gnarliest problems and doing so at a profit. It's a... Uh, it's a heck of a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, you, you take the business case for sustainability to businesses large and small, um, and obviously you've had some successes, and it seems to be catching on. Does it, does it seem to be catching on at an accelerating pace? Yes. Yes. Uh, sustainability is one of the hottest topics now in business. We teach business leaders what it is, how to implement it, how to profit from it. And I'm very gratified to see companies as big as Unilever announce uh, in 2011 the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, 
their CEO, Paul Pullman, has committed to cut their environmental impact in half by 2020, source everything that uh, all their feedstocks that come from something grown from sustainable agriculture, and lift a billion people out of poverty. That's impressive. Hmm. And that sounds like more than just cutting costs, sounds like a change in company culture. It is a dramatic change in culture. The other thing Pullman did was to say to Wall Street, I'm not going to report quarterly. He said this fixation on short-term corporate management is in part what drove the 08 financial collapse. We need, he said, management for the long term to grow real corporate value, and you can't do that quarter to quarter. So I'm not going to report quarterly. He lost 10% of his stock value almost immediately. And he said, I respect those of you who sold the stock as human beings, but if you think that short-term management is going to grow the value of your holdings, thanks, I don't want you as my owners. Hmm. Since then, his stock has gone up 17%, and their profits have doubled. Hmm. Of course, another part of a, uh, a, an economy that's growing more green is green jobs. And, um, when you, of course, the green jobs are going to have to replace the, the jobs in the, the old uh, extractive economy. Uh, what sorts of jobs will, will be out there, green jobs? There are generically two kinds of green jobs. There are jobs doing something green, like uh, installing renewable energy or retrofitting buildings. These are jobs with, uh, with a very long future. There are also every job that's out there now implementing more sustainable practices in the company that you're already in. As I mentioned, almost every company has enormous opportunities to do whatever it is that it's doing dramatically more efficiently. And this resource productivity is the, is the key to economic prosperity, to corporate prosperity, and to a sustainable future. So even if you don't want to quit your existing job, look around you at your company and say, how can we be more sustainable? How can we use less stuff? How can we take our waste stream and turn it into resources? How can we enable our people to travel less and be more productive? How can we use the energy that we're using more efficiently or use renewable energy? Just look around you at wherever you work and see what it is that you can do. You will be contributing to the green economy. Hunter Lovins, president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. She was making the business case for sustainability, talking about climate change as well. Uh, she's trained as a sociologist and lawyer and is a professor of sustainable business management at various institutions of higher learning. She gave the keynote address recently at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit in Ogden. Your comments are very welcome. You can uh, shoot those to us via our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We are... Uh, having a series of programs on sustainability. We'd love to get some guidance from you uh, via your comments, upraxis at gmail.com. And uh, you can go to our website, uh, upr.org as well. We're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Coming up following the break, 
going to revisit a very interesting conversation with photojournalist Scott Wallace, author of The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Wallace joined Brazilian explorer Sidney Pozuelo at the head of a 34-man team in search of the mysterious Flecheros, or People of the Arrow, and uh, the mission was to protect them. They, in turn, are dangerous. Uh, shower visitors with the arrows at some points. And the mystery is how they managed to endure as one of the last unconquered tribes. And uh, this is a critical battleground in the fight to save the planet. Scott Wallace, following the break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Miller's Northern Utah Glass at 553 North Main in Logan, providing glass products and service for residential, commercial, and automotive needs. Information is at millersglass.net. Are you looking for clear and concise car advice? Fourth gear would have been a better choice, but now that you've melted the engine, it probably, <laughs> probably is. doesn't no matter. Point. Did you bring this over here? No, no, it's a, it, it was a rental car. Oh! <laughs> Boy, there's another reason. <laughs> reason number 11, that you should never buy a rental car. Don't miss the fun this week. Join us for Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Waste not. A small drip leak on a faucet leaks up to 15 gallons per day. That's 450 per month. So make sure to check your faucets regularly. Another tip, turn off the water while brushing your teeth and save 25 gallons a month. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In today's increasingly interconnected global world, there are some indigenous peoples who do not want contact with the outside world. Uh, That number is dwindling, but in his book, The Unconquered, journalist Scott Wallace uh, details the extraordinary expedition to track one of the planet's last uncontacted indigenous tribes. Uh, The assignment, the goal... It's only track and to study, not to contact. In fact, we meet uh, charismatic explorer Sidney Pozuelo, who is head of Brazil's Department of Isolated Indians. He seeks to protect such peoples as the Arrow people, the Flecheros, and their rainforest homeland from the advancing frontier. It's a riveting story, uh, danger, and the environment. And we bring in uh, photojournalist uh, Scott Wallace, whose assignments have taken him all over the world, including the Himalayas, uh, Baghdad, uh, the Arctic, the Amazon. He is a uh, former correspondent for The Guardian and Newsweek, has written for National Geographic, also Harper's and the Smithsonian. Uh, Scott Wallace, pleasure to uh, welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. This is a real page-turner, uh, and it has, of course, uh, a lot of significance, especially for these indigenous peoples. Uh, this uh, tell us how many how many tribes do we think are out there in the deep Amazon basin who have uh, yet to be contacted? The Brazilian government, um, the Department of Isolated Indians, which you mentioned, um, has identified um, at least twenty seven such groups within the boundaries of Brazil. But they, um, that number actually continues to grow because they continue to investigate rumors of sightings of such uh, groups in the, in the jungle. Um, there may be another, as many as another 40 <laughs> in Brazil. So the number in Brazil itself may be as high as 60. 
um, known in um, other countries surrounding Brazil. There are 15 in Peru that are known of, a couple in Ecuador, a couple in Colombia, a couple in Bolivia. So all told, it may be somewhere between 60 and 80. And uh, this uh, Department of Isolated Indians, this uh, marked, I think, almost single-handedly due to uh, Sidney Pozuelo, a a change, a shift in uh, policy in Brazil? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Sidney Pozuelo, who's the main character of my book, The Unconquered, and is like... is the founder was the founder of the Department of Isolated Indians within Brazil's Indian Affairs Agency and led this expedition. Um, he actually um, pushed the Brazilian government to change its policy um, from one of um, using these indigenous um, rights you know, activists and scouts such as Posuelo, who used to venture forth into the jungle to actually make contact with the so-called wild tribes of the Amazon in order to protect them, move them out of the way of the advancing frontier um, and, and, you know, relocate them on, you know, uh, on reduced um, and smaller plots of land. Um, he uh, changed the policy to one of um, identifying where these tribes actually are and then um, protecting that land and keeping outsiders out and letting the people live there as they have um, for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. So I was reading, uh, you you outline a little bit of the history in, in Brazil, the contact and the policy toward indigenous peoples reminded mm-hmm. me of the, the history in many other nations, including the United States, except that they have gone this one step further. They've had the chance to go one step further now. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, the Indian Affairs Agency in Brazil actually grew out of their military. Um, originally, the founder of the Indian Protection Service, a man named Candido Rondon, who actually um, later on took Teddy Roosevelt down the river of doubt. Um, many people know that story from an excellent book that came out a few years ago about it. Anyway, Rondon was the founder of the Indian Protection Service 100 years ago, um, and he himself was a military man, a colonel in the Brazilian army, who had been charged with going deep into the wilderness in Brazil in Brazil to lay strategic telegraph lines um, to link the remote hinterlands to the you know, population centers in the Atlantic coast. Rondon, interestingly, in, his, in the course of his missions deep into the um, backwoods of Brazil, came to see the Indians who lived there, and he had many first contacts with them as the rightful owners of the land and its most capable stewards. And so his attitude was, we need to protect these people, recognize their rights. Um, and so it was kind of um, a very different policy than the one that evolved on the North, North American continent with our military and the very direct and violent you know, um, mm-hmm. wars, the Indian wars that were waged um, up here. So some of the differences began at the very beginning. Right. It sounds right. like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and partly, maybe in some way, too, because Rondon was actually half, uh, half, uh, half uh, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote half-breed. He was mixed-blooded. So he actually had Indian blood, um, which probably made him more apt to um, identify with the indigenous people he encountered in the, in the hinterlands. And I'm sure on the other side, there's, I'm guessing there's pushback. There's, uh, the, the policy has resulted in uh, large reserves for, uh, you know, very few people. 
and uh, there are economic pressures. There's gold mining and logging and, and drug running. It's kind of like the Wild West, isn't it? And, uh, well, so... it very much is. I mean, that's one of the things that I found so compelling about the story and which, you know, kind of um, made um, for me writing the Unconquered um, such a, an imperative is the, are these comparisons with our own sort of Wild West of a, maybe 150 years ago. There is... Um, you know, a uh, so there's the frontier and there are indigenous groups living beyond it and along along it, and you know um, it's kind of a free for all with uh, loggers, as you said, loggers, gold miners, prospectors, uh, land grabbers, you know, land sharks, uh, settlers. You, you've got everything there. It's kind of a very um, um, you know effervescent, ever changing. Um, situation and one that I find incredibly interesting and compelling. Um, it's almost like, uh, in some ways, um, having the opportunity to venture into a time machine and go back a couple centuries. And, and, and so, in 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 this mix, a lot of competing pressures. Uh, the, the the policy was passed. There there are these reserves. Uh, that, right. Hard hard to enforce them, I'm sure, but there are these reserves. Yeah. So the Department of Isolated Indians, by virtue of having identified. You know, up till now, these 27, you know, um, indigenous, isolated indigenous groups and getting um, the government to declare those lands off limits to outsiders um, has actually in its jurisdiction some 50,000 square miles of pristine rainforest, roughly about the size of New York State, um, you know, that that is being protected and is off limits as a result of the presence of uncontacted or isolated indigenous groups in those forests. One of the really interesting things about this policy um, is that you cannot, you know, Pozuelo evolved this policy of no contact um, because even when you try um, in, in a humanitarian way to make contact with these um, populations, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, don't, shouldn't they benefit from our civilizations? Shouldn't we bring them the benefits, including, you know, modern medicine and education and so forth to these people? One of the big problems is that as soon as you make contact with them, large numbers of them die off because they do not have immunity to the germs that we carry. So flu, measles, even a common cold can be deadly for them. So the only way you can really protect these people in Pozuelo's philosophy is to protect the land they live on, keep outsiders out. They don't need any of our industrial products. They can live completely independently from our money economy if they have pristine rainforest in which to um, live. And so this is a policy that both recognizes the self-determination of these people because they've made it clear that they're not interested in joining our society. So it's a recognition of their self-determination at the same time it is, you know, recognizes the imperative of environmental conservation. So saving the rainforest, saving the tribes, they go together in this policy. It's quite interesting in that respect. We're talking in Access Utah with Scott Wallace. He's author of The Unconquered in Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at, uh, at gmail.com. 
you write about a, a man called Ivan from the, uh, I think it's the, the Matis tribe. Correct. They, they were only contacted 25 years ago. He, mm-hmm. he To reinforce what you were just saying, uh, he talks about how a lot of the tribe was wiped out with just friendly contact. Uh, absolutely. Um, the Matisse suffered uh, more than 50% mortality in the wake of contact in the mid-1970s. So it was really interesting, you know, this journey that I embarked upon that, that I write about in the book is really kind of like a Lewis and Clark style expedition into deep wilderness with indigenous scouts. Pozuelo put together um, an expedition of 34 men, including 20 Indians from three contacted or friendly tribes who would serve as who were excellent trackers, hunters, backwoodsmen, and could also serve as potential intermediaries in the case of an inadvertent contact with the Arrow people because we were trekking through their land the Arrow People's land. Um, and so we had among us in this um, 34-man team, there were 12 um, uh, members of the Matisse tribe. They were actually the largest single ethnic group in our expedition. And about half of them were old enough to remember what life was like um, before contact, when they saw their first white man, what they thought. And so they they provided a a, a, um, a really um, valuable window into understanding uh, you know the the whole process of contact and what the what the arrow people for example might have um, also thought about us but also they 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 did have these dramatic stories about how their tribe began began dying off even though you know it was Pozuelo's agency the Indian Protection Service who made the contact in a friendly way, meaning to protect them. But in the end, you know, more than half of them died, including most of their elders and shamans and, you know, headmen who were the repositories of tribal knowledge. So a lot of what this tribe, you know, knew um, in terms of their, you know, um, in terms of their knowledge of the forest and the um, psychotropic and, and medicinal plants in the forest and the, the ceremonies and, you know, they're, they're basically storehouse of tribal knowledge. A lot of it was lost after contact. And interestingly, you mentioned this, the common cold can, can wipe these tribes out. That's right. I mean, they are, they remain, um, the indigenous tribes, the isolated indigenous tribes of the Amazon remain as vulnerable to, um, you know, diseases brought by um, brought from Euro- the Eurasian landmass, the microbes that we brought to the New World, um, which evolved over millennia on the uh, in the Old World, um, the, those the, these tribes in the Amazon still remain as vulnerable as the first uh, Indians encountered by Christopher Columbus 500 years ago. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's very interesting. This is sort of like where this 500-year process of conquest of the New World has led into these last redoubts of, you know, unexplored wilderness in the deep Amazon. Yeah, that's uh, 500 years later. This is this is where it's ended. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't quite ended yet. It hasn't quite ended yet, yes, and that, <laughs> yep. that's, that's the goal. Um, right, exactly. Posuelo says at one point, uh, he, it, you know, backing what you just said, he said that these peoples are very much uh, like the peoples Americo Vespucci would have Yeah, would so have detailed. That, there, there was this one um, amazing 
moments that I write about in in the book where we uh, encounter the first signs that we are actually in the forest inhabited by this group called the Arrow People, that we call the Arrow People because nobody knows what they actually call themselves. There's never been peaceful contact with them to know what they call themselves, but we encounter this... Um, this encampment that they, you know, had slept in not long ago, a group of them had slept in, and there were, you know, palm fronds spread out on the ground, um, now drying and kind of brown and desiccated, but showing where the indentations of bodies where they had slept, and there was like a conical kind of bird cage they had fashioned from twigs and and vine, lashed together with vine, and some other artifacts, and, you know, Pozuelo at that moment said, you know, these, these, with this, you know, tone of marvel in his voice, these are, you know, almost like saying this is like a time capsule into the past. These are how, you know, these Indians live very close to the way um, Americo Vespucci or any of the first explorers would have encountered them in, in um, you know, in in the new on the new continent, as it were. So, which is one of the really exciting things about this story. I mean, is just there's so much history and um and you know interaction of cultures and discovery and exploration bound up in the story um which is i think what makes um makes it so exciting we're talking with scott wallace on the program today the unconquered the in search of the amazon's last uncontacted tribes is the book uh, by the way the website's uh, scottwallace.com um, when we come back from a brief break, I'm going to ask Mr. Wallace to respond to the argument for contacting these last uncontacted tribes after the break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. What was the happiest moment in your life and why? How do you want to be remembered? Has your life been different than what you might have imagined? What are your dreams for me? What questions have you always wanted to ask? I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Record a conversation with someone you love when our mobile recording booth comes to town. StoryCorps will be in St. George, Utah throughout the month of May. To reserve your spot, visit upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is also made possible in part by our members and by the USU Human Resources. The Unconquered is a book from Scott Wallace, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes, the gripping tale of uh, an expedition in 2002 uh, seeking to uh, chart and uh, learn a little more about uh, a specific tribe, the Flecheros, the uh, the Arrow people, uh, who have uh, resisted contact. In fact, uh, neighboring tribes uh, describe them as uh, very willing to shower you with uh, poison-tipped arrows and retreat into the uh, wilderness to, to keep themselves uncontacted. Uh, Scott Wallace uh, joined this expedition with uh, Sidney Pozuelo. Uh, by the way, Scott Wallace, you describe uh, Sidney Pozuelo as, uh, as sort of brooding, uh, charismatic. You, you draw a uh, parallel to uh, the Klaus Kinski character in A Gear Wrath of God. Yeah. It's a very interesting yeah. character. <laughs> so, you know, Pozuelo is a very difficult man. I mean, he's... Um, especially difficult to spend three months with in the wilderness, but great for literature, you know, I mean, so, yeah. uh, just an extraordinary character, you know, full of contradictions, a a flawed hero, if you will, an amazing person, really an incredible man um, who, you know, single-handedly 
really led Brazil into this new uh, policy and this whole new way of um, dealing with its indigenous populations, which has had an impact, uh, I think, a global one. So um, he's an incredible character. And, um, you know, I'm sure he's not all that happy with the way I portray him in some (laughs) respects, but um, I think in the end, um, anyone who reads this book will will see that he is um, really a hero for what he's done and the, and the change that he's been able to bring about. Now, this policy of not contacting uh, these tribes, I, I'm guessing this would probably be a majority view, but I ran across in the, the, what I would uh, think would be a minority view in a, in a review of, uh, of your book. The hmm. gentleman, I forget his name. Um, John Torberg, probably. Uh, probably. Um, New York Review of Books. Yeah. Yes, yes, I believe you're right. Uh-huh. Um, he, he put forward the argument for contact, and I want to have you respond to that. It, if I can remember correctly, uh, he's saying that, uh, uh, at least viewed from our cultural lens, uh, these people live uh, short, hard lives, and some of the people he's talked to that have been contacted and of course, have survived. Um, enjoyed enjoyed the blessings of uh, civilization and and technology assimilated quite well. Of course, he he acknowledges that 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 bridge is can be a very very um, hard hard uh, thing to, to to cross. And <laughs> contact it's inescapable uh, could result in half your tribe being wiped out. But I wonder if you'd contact you'd uh, respond to some of those arguments. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that Torberg says is like, you know, well, they'll never know unless we contact them, you know, a, a um, you know, a Mozart opera or what it's like to, you know, eat a um, entrecote with, you know, mushrooms and French fries or, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what he said, but sort of something along those lines. The fact of the matter is that, you know, for, for the vast majority of these people, um, once they've been contacted, the um, the life that follows is one of sheer misery and hell. Um, as we've already discussed, a lot of them begin to die off um, following this demographic shock. Um, many of many tribal groups um, kind of lose the will to go on, the will to resist. Um, you know, the, the, lose the ability to resist the um, onslaught of settlers and invaders who um, who soon encroach on their lands. Um, no longer fearing the violent response that could come from, you know, untamed warriors. Uh, and um, uh, so they, they're they not going to get, you know, it's, it's like these are the, the, the indigenous tribes of the Amazon are, you know, among the most marginalized of the most marginalized populations on Earth. And they are not going to be magically catapulted into, you know, having great, jobs and internet, you know, connections. And, you know, there have been some tribes who've been very successful in doing that, but it's not, uh, it's not the majority of them by any means. Um, they're, they're, um, the result of contact for them is much more akin to, you know, uh, misery occupying the very lowest rungs of society, um, despoiled of their lands and their culture. And, um, and so it's not the kind of picture that um, I, I don't think, you know, John Torborg, I respect him a lot. He's a, an incredible scholar, but um, I, I disagree with him on that point for sure. Sidney Pasuelo, you quote him as saying, I'm just giving them some time, talking about the people of the Arrow and other indigenous peoples. He, he doesn't sound terribly hopeful about the ultimate outcome here. Well, um, I, I would say I think you're probably right about that. Um, 
he so Pozuelo um, says, you know, I'm not trying to keep these people locked away forever in, in a kind of, you know, exotic theme park, um, but rather giving them the opportunity to choose um, under what conditions or when they might want to make contact with the outside world. Um, they know where we are. They can follow any river um, far enough downstream, and it will come to, you know, the first outpost of our civilization. Um, Pozuelo believes that these people have um, the right to their own um, self-determination, and if they're choosing not to make contact with us, as, um, you know, in most instances that seems to be the case, then they should be left alone until such a time as they feel like they um, are ready to do so. Um, I think, you know, from what we've seen in um, certain parts of the Amazon in, in the last year or so, I mean, there, there does seem to be some um, evidence in Peru, for example, um, that there may be some um, nomadic tribes uh, in Peru, a, a tribe called the Mascopiro in particular, who have been making um, frequent appearances on riverbanks and calling to boats that pass them, um, that they may be ready for that contact. The problem is um, that um, how do you mobilize the resources necessary to ensure that that contact comes off with a minimum amount of, um, you know, a, a minimum number of casualties from disease or from violent encounters, and um, it, it's a it's a big undertaking. And so, um, yeah, it's very, it's very. Uh, that's a very tricky situation. Yeah, I was just wondering how uh, how would you manage contact like that so so you don't wipe out the trap. Well, um, you know, Brazil has a better infrastructure for this. They have an inst institutional history and infrastructure. Uh, Peru is not at this point very well prepared for this. Although um, the new government there appears to be um, interested in evolving a policy um, um, that would um, you know appropriate to deliver an appropriate response. Uh, but you would have to have teams of, um, first of all, you would have to educate the, the local populace living around an area where uncontacted groups are wandering, um, what they need to do um, to either stay clear of these people or, you know, um, what, you know, there, there, there needs to be education on the frontier. There needs to be a rapid response team of doctors and nurses and public health officials um, those are probably the most important um, elements to um, evolving, you know, uh, a contingency plan um, that that has some degree of, you know, some possibility of of some kind of success. From what uh, you were able to see, and I think your, your expedition did encounter a uh, a very recent campsite or a, a, a dwelling place for the flecheros, um, mm -hmm. and what you've been able to talk to with others who have had contact with them, what. This is a time capsule. This is a peak back 500 years. What What is life like for the flecheros, do you think? Well, you know, the flecheros in particular. So uh, I, we've mentioned that there are all these, you know, uncontacted groups still in the Amazon. Some of them um, have, um, you know, live in much better conditions than others. They're, they've, they've got, you know, they live more uh, deeper in the forest, further away from the frontier, um, with more abundant of with not not living on the run from the wine of chainsaws or the incursion of bulldozers. There's some tribes that are really living on the edge of a of a rapidly advancing frontier. The flecheros, the arrow people, have the good fortune of living in an area far from roads, where um, the only uh, major 
routes of penetration into their territory are rivers which um, the Indian Protection Service, FUNAI of Brazil, has um, has um, control posts erected on to keep intruders from penetrating upriver into their lands. And so, um, you know, the flecheros have, have probably have a, you know, um, they they've got some longevity ahead of them. They're they're a large group, um, several villages. Um, in fact, it's interesting. So we know so little about them, even after we did enter their you know, some of our expedition entered one of their villages inadvertently, um, and they fled moments before into the bush, leaving, you know, piles of smoked meat and smoldering campfires. It was really quite extraordinary. Uh, but they um, they have, um, you know, we went in there to basically chart the dimensions of their territory in order to pre protect it and then get out. They have, um, they're, they're looking at a good... Um, uh, you know, a fairly decent future, I think, where they have an abundance of game. That's one of the things we discovered as a result of going into their village, that game is abundant, they're, that they're hunting it, um, that they are living well, um, and their populations appear to be stable and in some cases even growing. So, um, you know, there is some cause for optimism. Just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I wonder if we could conclude with uh, something you said early in the uh, interview. Uh, you, you connected up future of these indigenous uh, uncontacted peoples with the future of the Amazon itself. Yeah. So one of the things that is also extremely important about knowing about these people and knowing they exist, um, th they um, represent, I think, you know, a, a, um, a hope for rallying um, support for the cause of saving the rainforest, in, in saving the uncontacted tribes and protecting them and recognizing their uh, inalienable right to live the way they choose on land that has been theirs since time immemorial. We are also um, protecting the rainforest that we all know is so vital um, for all of us, for regulating the global climate, for providing, you know, it's a big ox uh, uh, carbon sink and providing oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, we, we, know, we all know we need to begin to take better care of the planet and that the rainforest in the Amazon is one of these precious treasures and now even more precious because these vulnerable tribes who have been living there since, um, you know, and in the same way that they've been living there since time immemorial, um, it's quite extraordinary and it's cause for all of us to think about um, how we should be um, helping out. The book is The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. It's, uh, it's quite a true tale. Uh, Page-turner Scott Wallace is the author and uh, the website. Uh, more information, scottwallace.com. Scott Wallace, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure.